you for listening to another inspiring message from The Movement Church. To find out more about The Movement Church, you can check out our website at theocmovement.com or follow us on Facebook and Instagram at The OC Movement. Good morning. Man, you guys look fantastic. You, you live, look probably at least 10% better than first service, so I'm proud of you. You did a great job. It's so good to have you here. My name is Carrie, for those of you who are with us for the first time, and my wife and I are some of the pastors here at the Movement Church. You got to see her. She was the beautiful young lady who was up here a moment ago challenging us and encouraging, and man, I just want to tell you, it's so good to have you with us, and it's good to be back from Africa uh, yeah, it's so good. I heard my wife did an amazing job preaching last week and always does. We're, we're literally just such so privileged to have her as part uh, of the leadership, but also the teaching team. But man, I had an amazing trip to Africa. Many of you who have been with us for a while, you know that we work with a, a care point or a feeding site in Swaziland. And Swaziland is a nation the size of New Jersey uh, kind of position almost in the southeast side of South Africa, and uh, we've been working with these guys for about almost six years, and it was so cool to actually go there and see the built the building that we completed about three months ago. Come on, give yourself a hand clap on that one. I had this kind of amazing moment where I walked on the property and I saw this building, which represents so many amazing things, and I just was overwhelmed with emotion. We help feed nearly 400 children there daily, and if it wasn't for what you do, literally some of these kids, their livelihood would not even be possible. And so we also sponsor some of those children, and uh, once the building was completed, it, it, drew, it drew the attention of the community. It's a, a rural community called Otondwini, and literally people came and said, hey, can we get jobs here? And, and how, they didn't know what it was fully until they started to see, oh, wait, no, this is about reaching children permanently. And so now we have some availability for some more sponsorships. We'll be talking about that, uh, I believe, it on the 18th, so don't miss that Sunday. I think we have close to 100 children who are currently unsponsored, and sponsoring them costs uh, each of us has, on a monthly basis, about three or four lattes from Starbucks, but it provides sustenance in a way you would never imagine. Uh, not only does it make sure that they can eat one amazingly healthy meal a day, but it also provides health screening for them in a country where 55% of the population is either HIV positive or has AIDS. We can find those symptoms or signs that early on and help them sustain their livelihood into their 40s and their 50s, all at the cost of a couple of lattes. So we'll tell you more about that uh, in the weeks to come, and we'll talk about that tonight at our legacy gala gala gala. Yes. Uh, we keep having arguments about it. Uh, the series said gala. We stuck with it. Pastor Jeremy said we should call it legacy galaga, and I was like, where were you months ago? Because that's way better. So first service laughed at that one. Apparently, I have no Gen Xers in here. Galaga, any of you? <laughs> Apparently not. We'll move on. Anyways, that's enough about that. We're excited to see you. We'll tell you more about what's going on in Africa. We're starting a brand new series called Living with Lions. Everyone say Living with Lions. And I've got a lot of content to hit today. In fact, I went a little bit long in first service, and so I want to challenge you to listen well today because uh, I want to hit this stuff with everything that I've got. This whole series is about how to stand firm and love well in a culture 
of compromise. Another way of saying that in a question form is when culture shifts, how will you respond? How do you live godly in a culture that is ungodly? And I want to tell you, we're we're living in a culture that that, that literally it, it does not have the biblical values that so many of us love and appreciate at the core of who they are. Now, if you're here today and you're not sure what it is that you believe, permission to belong before you believe. But if you're here today and you say, I'm a Christ follower, I'm, I've given my life to Christ and I'm walking in it, then I want to challenge you and tell you that the Bible tells us there's a standard for living, a standard for life. And the culture that we live in literally in so many ways is counter the biblical standard. The amazing thing is God knew we would struggle with this. So there's a character in the Bible named Daniel who did this well. Many of you may have heard his story, or maybe you learned from Veggie Tales. It doesn't matter. We're going to talk about Daniel over the course of the next four weeks. In fact, he faced so many insane challenges, one of which, because of his faith, he was thrown into a den with lions, hence the title, Living with Lions. And we're going to take a few weeks to unpack this amazing character, and I believe learn how to love well, and stand firm in a culture of compromise. Let's pray to get this started. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes? God, we just thank you that you're here. We thank you that you're doing something right in the middle of who we are. Right now, God, I pray that you give us insight and wisdom to hear and receive what it is that you want to do in our lives. But Holy Spirit, I just pray that you would show up in the way that only you can. Would you soften our hearts? Sometimes the topics that we talk about and sometimes the truth that the word reveals are challenging. So, God, I pray that for each of us that we would be able to lean in. And, Lord, we know that the word says that when we lean into you, that you lean in to us. So, God, do something in our lives today like you never have before. In Jesus' name I pray, amen and amen. Before I unpack this, this message for you today, I, I, I want to kind of also kind of give a little historical reference and context to where we're going. Uh, we're pulling from a Bible found in the Old Testament. The Bible is split into two parts, the Old Testament and the New Testament, and Jesus is right in the middle and brings them all together. And what you may or may not know is the Bible is not written chronologically, so it doesn't go in order of the sequence of events, which can be challenging at times. And the, the Bible has books in the Old Testament that are grouped together, not because of the chronological order, but because of the type of books that they are. For instance, the first five books are referred to as the law. It's Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And then we have the historical books, which tell the history of God's people who are known as the Israelites, the Hebrews. And then following the historical books are the poetic books. Everybody go, aww. This is like Psalms and Proverbs, and there's like a poetic flair to them, and a great book called Song of Solomon. If you haven't read it, you need to read it. It's a good one. And then there are what's called the major and the minor prophets, and this is where the writers are talking about the things that are to come, and the reason they're called major and minor has nothing to do with the significance of the prophet, but the length of the book. And so the book we're reading from is Daniel, and it's got this hybrid scenario taking place where it's both historic and prophetic. And it's as if God is saying, hey, wait a minute, pay attention, because history, if we're not careful, 
can and will repeat itself. Pay attention because there's something you can pull from this book that will radically impact our lives today in the 21st century. We find in this book the people of Israel have rejected God as their king. And so they're paying a price for it. And I believe that the nation that we live in is facing the very same dilemma. I know you may not remember this, but we are one nation under God. And yet we've drifted and shifted in our culture away from godly principles. So the book that we're talking about today was literally written 600 years before Jesus arrived on this earth. And here we find the Israelites have stopped looking to God as their king. They've stopped looking to who God is. And as a result, God said, okay, if you don't want to be my people, then I'll stop fighting your battles for you. I mean, I love you and I'm here anytime you want and need. But if you don't want to be my people, I'll let you fight your own battles. And as a result, the Israelite people went through cycles of centuries sometimes where the enemy would come in and surround or besiege it. And take them captive. And now in this story, we find the people of Israel have been besieged by Babylon, which is modern day Iraq. And King Nebuchadnezzar, which is a great name to name your children. King Nebuchadnezzar has defeated them. And now the Bible would refer to this, refer to this as being in exile. Are y'all tracking with me now? There's your history lesson for the day. And we pick up this story in Daniel chapter 1. If you brought your phones, you can scroll through with, with me. If you didn't, it'll be on the screen behind me. Or you can always text the word notes, and you can follow along with everything we've got for you. But check this out, Daniel chapter 1, verse 1. It says this, In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, there's that amazing name, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord delivered Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand along with some of the articles of the temple of God. So what they did is they not only came in and took over the Israelites, they ransacked God's house. And they removed the valuables which had so much value to the people of Israel and took it over to their pagan gods. And then they carried these off to his temple in Babylonia and put in the treasure house of his God. They literally desecrated the house of God. Look at what verse 3 says this. Then the king ordered Ashpenaz, another great name for your children. If you're considering, Nebuchadnezzar and Ashpenaz should be in the top. But remember these names. We're going to talk about Ashpenaz here in a moment. By the way, when Megan said some of you need to get your ask back, did you all kind of freak out for a moment? I was like, oh, thank you for enunciating the K. I was hoping she would say, turn to your neighbor and say, get your ask back, but she didn't, so we'll move on. And then the king ordered Ashpenaz, chief of his court officials, to bring in some of the Israelites from the royal family and the nobility. So here's what's happening. They've taken them captive, and now they're saying, let's separate what we believe are the good from the bad. So we're going to take the well-educated and the upper class and bring them into the court of the king. Verse 4 says this. Here's who we're looking for. Young men without any physical defect that are handsome, showing aptitude for every kind of learning, well-informed and quick to understand. I know right now you're thinking, this sounds a lot like our pastor. Quick to understand and qualified to serve in the king's palace. And he was to teach them the language and the literature 
of the Babylonians. Now, let's pause right here. Let me tell you what's taking place. If we're not paying attention, we'll miss it. They're now trying to indoctrinate these young men into this new culture. That's the shift that just took place. Verse 5 says, the king assigned them a daily amount of food and wine from the king's table. Now, some of you are thinking, woohoo, this sounds like a party. But the food and wine from the king's table literally broke every dietary Jewish law that there was. And this food was literally dedicated and offered to idols and pagan gods. So it was considered unclean for these Jewish boys who have now been taken captive as prisoners and then indoctrinated into a Babylonian kingdom. And now they're saying, now you're going to shift your culture and adopt or acclimate to ours. The Bible says they were to be trained for three years, and after that, they were to enter the king's service. Now, in verse 6, we're introduced to some of the main characters, and of course, the chief character, which we'll talk about for the duration of this series. Verse 6 says, among these were some from Judah, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. And again, right here we see culture begin to shift. Now remember, this book is placed both in the historical and prophetic books in the Bible, and God's saying, hey, pay attention, because we're facing the same cultural dynamics and challenges today. Look at me in the eyes for just a moment. The enemy has an agenda, and he is using culture like a Swiss army knife in our life. How many of you remember Swiss Army Knives? Anyone? I've got a picture of one up here. It's got everything. And if you had it, you were always looking for the tweezers, and you could never find the tweezers, right? You could find that nasty toothpick, which had gross things on it, but the tweezers were always gone. Well, the enemy is using culture like a Swiss Army Knife. In other words, he has a tool for every area of your life to get us blinded and to shift away from a godly culture unassumingly, often unintentionally, into a culture that is ungodly around us. And we see this shift taking place with Daniel and his friends. So here's a question I have for you, and I'll pose this throughout the entire series, and that is when culture changes, how will you respond? Not your neighbor, not the one sitting next to you, not the person you drugged to church, but you. How will you respond? Here's another way to ask it. When culture shifts, will you and let me just say this right now off the bat. Culture changes, but God does not. The Bible says that God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And I believe this, that we in this room, most of us are influenced by culture more than we realize. We live in a society where moral relativism has become the lens through which we view life. Moral relativism is the idea or the notion that I can just do whatever feels right to me in the moment as long as it doesn't hurt anyone else. It's created or painted a worldview through which we determine what is right and what is wrong. So instead of allowing the word to dictate, dictate that, we've allowed culture to paint this worldview of moral relativism. And now we go, oh, I can determine what is right and what is wrong based upon the moment and the experience that I'm walking through. Let me explain to you exactly what I mean. 
you'll identify here in the next few moments that many of us have different views or beliefs or standards for what is right and wrong. How many of you have ever been on a plane before? Raise your hand. Awesome. Well, guys, here's the thing. Something happens as we the plane plane lands and approaches the, the jetway. It's as if we lost everything that we learned in kindergarten. The seatbelt uh, fasten sign turns off and everyone stands up and there's always that joker who tries to run to the front. And you know he doesn't have a short connection. He just wants to get off the plane. Have you all ever experienced this in my life? I like to get out and I stretch my leg across and I hold my bags. And I do some squat thrusts right in the middle of the aisle. Man, my pants come up on my calf muscles every time. Got some Steve Wagner socks rocking those. So you're welcome. I like to stand in the middle to make sure that joker doesn't get off the plane before his appointed time. Anybody else feel like sometimes you need to teach people lessons? Like on the highway, that guy that like, crumbs up, yeah, you know, yeah, blessings. Let me talk to you about a couple other things. I mean, just kind of, let's just kind of, let's look at all, the whole spectrum. I actually believe that when it comes to raising children, we do them a disservice by counting to three. Hey, get over here. One, two. Two and a half. Don't make me get to three as if they're actually threatened by you. Fourteen. What we're teaching is delayed obedience, which is still disobedience. Well, that just sounds so harsh. I tell my children, hey, come here right now. Now wash my feet. And I'm kidding. I'm kidding. (laughs) Let's talk about something that's really important. I think that values, and, and it might split this room in half when you put the toilet paper on the roll. This matters. Jesus is watching. How many of you in this room do flap over the top? Raise your hand. How many of you are flap under the bottom? Raise your hand. You're going to hell. I hate that for you. We're praying. At the end of the service, we'll give you a chance to repent, but I don't know. I don't know. Let's talk about a couple other things. Let's just let's talk about this for a moment. Divorce. The, di- the divorce rate in America is literally at or above 50 percent. Now, pause for a moment, because here's the way the enemy works. I'm not talking about whether or not you have walked through a divorce in your life. I'm talking about using divorce as a leverage in your current marriage. The Bible has a standard for it. Megan and I just decided a long time ago we won't ever use that as a leverage. Now listen, there are some unhealthy situations that people do need to get out of. But what I'm saying is, man, we got to let the Bible be our standard. So again, pause and look at me in the eyes. If you're here today and you have walked through a divorce, I am not speaking judgment on you. And there, it, man, you are loved more than you ever have been before. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm just saying about moving forward. I heard a preacher told, tell his wife one time, if you leave me, I'm coming with you. And I like that one. How about this one, being drunk? There's no biblical grounds for being drunk ever, not even accidentally, Ac- not even accidentally. I'm not talking about whether or not you enjoy a beer or a wine. I'm just saying there's no biblical standard for it. What about sex before marriage? There's no biblical standards for having sex outside the confines of marriage ever, ever. You see what I'm saying? Can you feel the tension now? And culture, that is crazy to culture. Crazy. So I'm just saying that there is something influencing your worldview. And for most of us, we've allowed culture to creep its way in. 
Maybe not in every area, but in some. What we need more than a worldview is we need a word view. We need to know what the word of God says for us. And look at what we see right here in Scripture. This first shift takes place in Daniel chapter 1, verse 7. The chief officials gave them new names. Right here, the first shift takes place. To Daniel, the name Belteshazzar. To Hananiah, Shadrach. To Mishael, Meshach. And to Azariah, Abednego. These are amazing names, aren't they? You need to know that when culture shifts, it will try to rename you. It will try to rename you. It will try to change your identity from whom God created you to be to what the world thinks you should be. That's what culture does. It's a direct insult on, God's, on your God-given identity, on the very nature and reason that God created you. And culture will try to label you as anything other than what God labels you. Many of us in this room grew up and remember moments where someone said, you're stupid, you're not smart enough, you won't amount to anything, you always make mistakes, you never seem to make wise choices, and we've allowed those labels to rest in on who we are and thus consequently affected the decisions that we've made. But God gave you a name not to separate you, but to be the answer for a lost and hopeless and hurting generation. But culture will try to rename you. My name is Carrie Lee Robinson. You never hear your full name unless you're in trouble. Anyone? My mom had seven kids, and she was like, Carrot Candy, Sean, you know who you are. Get over here now. And we always did. We knew. It was always me. It was always me. My name is Carrie Lee Robinson. My mom and dad met at a Bible college in southern Mississippi called William Carey College. William Carey was the first missionary to India. The fact, the story goes that he was there for seven years before he saw one person say yes to Jesus. Talk about the need to have a little fight in you. And because of his faithfulness, it opened the door to Asia, and he is credited for opening the door for missionaries to get into the continent of Asia. My parents knew there was a destiny in my life and said, oh man, he's going to need a little fight in him. We're going to call him Carey. My name means defender of the fortress and the faith. Yeah, come on. <laughs> it just feels good. Defender of the fortress in the faith. <laughs> I don't know why I keep doing this. But you know, in high school, I was made fun of. In junior high, I was made fun of a lot because of my belief and my faith, and so I hid my faith. And it wasn't that I... It wasn't that I denied my faith. I just allowed the carnality of my life to have a louder voice. I just kind of shifted to become just like the culture around me. I loved to play basketball. I actually grew up in the hood in Section 8 housing, and I was the only one with my skin tone in the neighborhood that I grew up in. I was a lot darker with curly hair, so I was asked if I was mixed a lot. I don't Probably because of my skills on the court, just throwing that out there. And I never forget, once God finally got a hold of my life, I started inviting those same friends to church with me. And I'll never forget, I was walking down Parkwood Boulevard in Plano, Texas, with this kid who we very appropriately nicknamed Buffalo. <laughs> I said, Buff, man, why don't you come to church with me sometime? And he looked at me and said, I didn't know you were a Christian. And then he began to tell me the things that I did that made me look and seem just like everyone else in our world. I had allowed culture to label me, and thus I lost my influence. 
I just want to let you know, maybe if, if the culture that you live in has labeled you as something other than who God's created you to be, that's why we exist as a church, to help you let go of your past and grab a hold of the future that God has for you. Look at me, the identity that God's given to you. In fact, every second Sunday, we've created a next step so that you can actually explore what it is that God's given to you. We call it the Welcome to Church Party. It happens next Sunday right after this service. It's a next step for you to understand what God is doing in and through you. Look at how they renamed these individuals in the scripture. Daniel, which means God is my judge. In other words, I answer to God and God alone. And they gave him the name Belteshazzar, which means lady, protect the king. They gave him a girl name. They gave him a girl name. And hey, you need to know that every cultural society throughout all of history has struggled with gender confusion. Every cultural society. Why? Because the enemy is not just messing with sexual purity, but with your identity in every single relationship. Look at me right here in the eyes. It's the notion that I don't even know who I am. I don't even know who I am. God didn't create us with a confusion. He created us with a purpose. Look at Hananiah. Hananiah means Yahweh has been gracious. Yahweh, God has been so good to Shadrach, which means I am fearful of God. I'm fearful of him. No, you need to be afraid of God. No, he's not a good God. He's mad at you, just waiting for you to mess up. So now the enemy is not only messing with every relationship, but messing with your spirituality. The world will tell you that you don't, you don't, you shouldn't serve God. You don't even understand. He, he's just waiting to just kind of zap you with lightning. He's restrictive and he's boring. That God is not for you, that he's against you. That's why we sing the song that we sang today. I am chosen, not forsaken. I am who you say I am. Everything in the Bible is for your good, not for his. For your good. I am chosen, not forsaken. I am who you say I am. I've been singing that song all week. God is for me, not against me. I am who you say I am. And everything in life will try to tell you you're not who you say you are. You're a fake. I know so many people walked in here today thinking, man, someday people are going to realize that I'm just faking it. Mishael means who is what God is. In other words, there's no one like my God. He's awesome. I have a confidence in my God. Tanishak, which means I am despised, contemptible, and humiliated. It takes the focus from confidence to cowardice. I don't know that we've ever lived in a time, in a day, in an age in America where we are being told, don't speak up about your faith. 
Don't you dare speak up about your faith, your belief. It might be offensive. You just be quiet and you sit tight over there. Everyone else can claim boldly what they believe and who they are and what they live for. They can do their truth, but don't you dare speak up about your faith. It'll be offensive. Not too long ago, my daughter was getting ready for school, and my wife said, hey, put on this Christmas sweater or sweatshirt. And she said, no, I don't want to offend people at my school. And while I love the compassion in my daughter, I said, no, you put that sweatshirt on and you wear it proudly. Why? It's not an offensive gesture. It's a hope-filled gesture. Are you tracking with me today? And when you get there, stand up on your desk and say, turn or burn. No, I didn't say that part. I didn't, I didn't say that part. Can I just for a moment be transparent and vulnerable? Maybe don't record this next part. But I'm frustrated because currently Hollywood is in an uproar about the sexual harassment scandals. Now, I'm not frustrated about that. That is absolutely wrong, and we should be in an uproar about it. But simultaneously, Hollywood is promoting sexual promiscuity and adultery and the objectification of women. It's how do we miss this? One of the greatest shows, according to the ratings right now, is all about this woman who's in love with the president and another man. You know what show I'm talking about? You got to laugh real quietly, didn't you, Scandal fans? No judgment, relax. Culture is just trying to remove the voice of Christianity. Remove the voice of Christianity. Now, listen, please don't go picketing. And hey, listen, don't use social media as your platform. Please don't do that. Or just d- un- stop liking the movement church while you're doing it. Just kind of distance yourself. <laughs> uh, what I'm saying is just walk with confidence that there's no one like your God. There's nothing, you don't have to get into your cubicle and crank air one. It's usually not that great music anyway. So you don't, am I not allowed to say that? Now you're mad at me? (laughs) Look at these names. Azariah, which is Yahweh has helped. It's this indication of a personal relationship with God to Abednego, which means servant of Nebo. See, when culture shifts, he changes our view of God, and I I stopped becoming a son, and now I'm a slave. Now the enemy is not just messing with relationships and spirituality. Now the enemy is messing with your future. When culture shifts, look at me. You better know who you are. You better know who you are. You are not what the world says you are. You are who God says you are. I am who you say I am. Gosh, I could sing it all day. Let's look at this story. Daniel 1, verse 8 says this. But Daniel resolved not to defile himself with the royal food and wine, and he asked the chief official for permission not to defile himself this way. Remember, the royal food and wine was considered unclean, and it was brought before pagan idols. And so he, he's like, I don't, I don't want to have to do anything with what this has to do with. Can we pull that verse up? Daniel 1, verse 8. But Daniel resolved not to defile himself with the royal food and wine, and he asked the chief official for permission not to defile himself in that way. I love what Daniel did. Is that He said, hey, I, I realize that we're in this new culture, but if you could please help me. We, we don't want to be shaped or molded into what your culture dictates. And here's what you need to know, that when culture shifts, not only will it try to rename you, but it will try to tame you. It'll try to tame you. 
Let me say it another way. When culture, what it will always do is ask you to compromise on your standards. It always puts this pressure on us to change what it is we believe, what we're living for. And then what happens is we begin to change the godly standard to meet the, cult, to meet the cultural standards. And here's the challenge. There's this amazing lure. It's an enticing lure into this wrong behavior while simultaneously believing that my wrong behavior isn't that bad. And then what happens is as I've shifted godly standards to match cultural standards, I have justified my actions, which are now contrary to the word of God. And then at times I may realize this, and what I'll do is I'll deceptively point to someone else's behavior as an anchor point for my own. Evaluating, comparing my trash heap versus your trash heap. Well, at least I'm not as bad as so-and-so. At least I'm not as jacked up as they are. And then the enemy rewrites a new narrative, and I begin to live a substandard life. Just remember, God is for you, not against you. It's a great way to live a life. His standard is not good for him, but it's good for you. When culture shifts, it will try to rename you, but here's what we've got to do. When culture shifts, we must reaffirm our convictions. One of the things I valued so much about my father is he made decisions based upon the convictions of the word of God. And sometimes it was so annoying. (laughs) I mean it like so annoying. And sometimes they were unfounded, but it was his convictions. And I love that about him. I just want to tell you, don't let culture tame you from the life that you know God created you to live. Don't let it tame you. We're going to talk about how to reaffirm godly convictions in this series. But let's look at what happens next in the scripture. Verse 9. If it doesn't pop up, you can read along and I'll read it for you. Verse 9. Now God has called, uh, God had caused the official to show favor and compassion to Daniel. So Ashpenaz is like, man, I like this guy. So he's showing favor and compassion. But verse 10 says this. But the official told Daniel, I'm afraid of my Lord, the king. Who has assigned your food and drink? Why should he see you looking worse than the other young men your age? Then the king would have my head because of you. But look at what Daniel says. So Ashpenaz, like, listen, I, I, I like you. I think you've got a great heart. But I'm afraid if I do what you're asking, the king's going to kill me. Verse 10, Daniel says this. Then Daniel said to the guard, whom the chief official had appointed over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. He said in verse 12, please. Test your servants for 10 days. Give us nothing but vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then compare our appearance with that of the young men who eat the royal food and treat your servants according with what you see. Verse 14, so he agreed to this and he tested them for 10 days. I don't even have time to explain to you the numerical significance when it comes to the word of God and the number 10. The number 10 is always significant and has to do with a test. How many commandments are there? Ten commandments. When God says return the tithe, your income, how much of our income are we supposed to return? Didn't God say test me in this? The number 10 is always synonymous with test. This is a test for Daniel, the first of many. And you need to know this, that when culture shifts, 
There will always be a test. You know, I've got a few more things to share, and we're getting close to the end of the time. Can we go a little bit long today? Is that all right? You can just leave, but I'll point you out if you do. <laughs> always be a test when culture shifts. Always be a moment of pressure. And it's a moment where culture will slap you in the face and say, I dare you to stand firm. I dare you to stand firm. And I think most of us can identify with that pressure. If we were honest and maybe we had a chance to meet one-on-one, we might say, you know what, there have been multiple times, not just one time, but multiple times in my life where I've been afraid to stand up for what I believe. When culture shifts, it will try to rename you, it will try to tame you, and then it will try to claim you. It will try to claim you. Culture will always create a confrontation. There's a battle raging, waging right now for your soul. And I know that often we feel unprepared. We're going to work through that in this series. What do I say? How do I respond? What do I do? But uh, we're going to work through some of the specifics and the practicals. But I just want to tell you this, that I believe we have a responsibility when culture shifts. We must respond the right way. And I hate to say this because I've been in the church my whole life. But I believe that for decades now, the church has been responding the wrong way. We see these two extremes at work. I promise you, you've experienced it. You've felt it or heard it somewhere. You have friends that won't come to church with you because of this. Or maybe it was even a deterrent for you stepping through the doors of a church because there's these two extremes at work. One is this dogmatic approach to truth. I know what I know, and it's right, and you're wrong, and if you don't change, you're going to the hottest part of hell. This dogmatic approach to truth. And this, the, here's the, the, the scary part is technically you may be right. But you've lost your ability to help a lost and dying world. Look at me in the eyes. God didn't call us to be right. He called us to be effective. Nobody ever lost an argument and said, oh, now I'll come to Jesus. The other side of that is this unholy approach to grace. Two extremes. A dogmatic approach to truth and an unholy approach to grace. An unholy approach to grace is this idea, now listen for the entirety of what I'm about to say, that God loves everyone, and he does. Nobody needs to change, and there's many ways to get to God. Right now there's a statistic out that 80% of people in America who call themselves Christians also simultaneously believe that there are many ways to get to heaven. As if it's all good. Can you feel the tension in the room? And now we have an entire generation of Christians who in the name of love have pushed the Bible aside and suggested as if I love people more than God does. Grace. My friends, we don't have the freedom to move God's truth. It's not our truth, it's his truth. So I believe there's this holy tension and an ability to find the balance between truth and grace. Daniel figured this out. He figured this out. 
how to stay firm in my belief and still influence a generation. And so did Jesus. He was totally holy, totally righteous, the embodiment of love and of grace, yet unwavering in truth, totally perfect. And yet time after time again, we find Jesus sitting around the table with prostitutes, tax collectors, and sinners. There's a way to do this. These people that surrounded Jesus were the furthest of what they would say belonged near Jesus. And yet they felt all overwhelmingly loved while he never unwavered in his truth. John 1.14 says exactly this. It says the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. That's talking about Jesus. We've seen his glory. The glory of the one and only son. Look at this. Who came from the father. What? Full of grace and truth. Boast grace and truth. What is truth? What is truth? It's God's standard. It's not what you feel in the moment. By the way, that's the scariest way to live. The truth is God's standard. John 17, 17 says, sanctify them by the truth. And then what does it say? The word, your word, is truth. Every single, listen, I just want to tell you this for a moment. We came here to Orange County to reach people who were far from God and don't know God. So every single human soul that lives in Orange County, no matter their creed, no matter their orientation, no matter their faith background, no matter their color, it doesn't matter what your heritage is. Every single human soul, every individual in Orange County has a space and a place here at the Movement Church. All are welcome. That's why every sign that we have says welcome home. But we do this while simultaneously believing that we will not budge on the truth of God's word. Culture changes, but God does not. Culture changes, but God does not. But here's the thing. We can't just stay there. Why? Because we need God's grace. We need God's grace. Grace is God's favor. Truth is God's word. Grace is God's favor. And he favors you at your most unfavorable moment. In your darkest hour, he favors you. There is nothing you or I can do to earn the grace and favor of God. It doesn't matter how much you attend the greatest church on the planet called the Movement Church. It doesn't matter if you're in a connect group or how much you give. You can't earn, grace, earn, earn his grace. Ephesians 2 said God saved you by his grace when what? You believed. You believed. You can't take credit for it. You can't earn it and you can't lose it. You can't lose it. You can't give enough, you can't serve enough, you can't love enough. It's his grace. We've got to find the balance between grace and truth. Without truth, we're corrupt. Without grace, we're condemned. A lot of us believe in a 51% gospel. If Hitler is zero and Jesus is 100, as long as I kind of slide the scale towards Jesus, I'll slide into heaven. 
But the Bible says we need 100%, which means no one measures up. And Jesus said, I got you. Without truth, we become worldly. Man, I need God's truth to be a good husband. I need God's truth to be a good father. I need God's truth to manage my thoughts and my anger. Without grace, I become judgmental. And it becomes all about that trash heap. Maybe I'm just a little bit better than you are. Comparing ourselves to others around us. Truth without grace is just mean. It's that dogmatic approach. It's just mean. But grace without truth is meaningless. Truth and grace, however, is a good medicine. Grace invites us all to be free. Jesus says, I know your background. I know your choices. I know your lifestyle. I know the darkest moments of your life. I know the thoughts you hope nobody ever sees or hears. I know the choices that you made decades ago and you would like to take them out of the chapters of the page of the book of your life. I know that I was there in that moment. I was there before you were created and I've been here all along and you are welcome. Welcome home. Grace invites us to be free, but how do we find freedom? It's the truth that will set you free. Look at the greatest depiction of grace and truth and work. And John chapter 8, it's one of my favorite stories in the Bible. I promise you know at least a portion, you know a statement from it, everyone does. We find Jesus put to the test by the religious leaders those that were this dogmatic approach to truth, surrounded by those that had an unholy expectation of grace. John chapter 8, verse 1, look at what it says. Jesus returned to the Mount of Olives, verse 2. But early the next morning, he was back again at the temple, and a crowd soon gathered. And he sat down and he taught them. And as he was speaking, the teachers of the religious law and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in the act of adultery. I've often wondered, how did these religious leaders catch this chick in the act of adultery? A bunch of creepers. And where's the dude? Makes you wonder if this wasn't a setup. It's not in the word, I'm just saying. It's amazing how we get so good at seeing everyone else's sin and we fail to see our own. That unholy, dogmatic approach to truth does exactly what the scripture says next. They threw her in front of the crowd. The teacher, they said. This word teacher in the Greek was a mockery. Not like, oh, teacher. Like, oh, teacher. They said to Jesus... This woman was caught in the act of adultery. The law of Moses says, the truth says we must stone her. Throw rocks at her until she's dead. But what do you say? What's your response going to be? Culture shifting. Culture is drag. It's trying to rename you. It's trying to tame you. It's trying to claim you. What do you say? And here is the tension. This is the tension. What are you going to do about it? What are you going to do about the Supreme Court decisions? What are you going to do when another young black man is shot by a police officer? What are you going to do when President Trump tweets yet again? What are you going to say? What are you going to do? Here is the tension. 
It's palpable. Verse 6 says they were trying to trap him into saying something they could use against him. Are you going to go truth and kill this woman? Or are you going to break the Bible and choose grace? Jesus, the Bible said, stooped down and began to write in the dust with his finger. We don't know what it was that he wrote. But in verse 7, they kept demanding an answer. So he stood up again and he says, all right, and this is the line that everyone knows. But let whoever is here that has never sinned throw the first stone, the first stone. The Bible says, verse 8, he then stooped down again and began to write in the dust. We don't know. Some historians believe he was writing the names of the mistresses of the Pharisees around Sally and Rachel. I saw what you did last summer. I don't know. What we do know is what happens next in verse 9. When the accusers heard this, they slipped away one by one, beginning with the oldest. This is Jesus. This is Jesus. This is the embodiment of who Jesus is. He confronts our sin and our past, but in a personal and unhumiliating way. Until only Jesus was left in the middle of the crowd with the woman. Verse 10 says, then Jesus stood up and he said to the woman, where are your accusers? Did not any of them condemn you? No, Lord, she said. And Jesus said, neither do I. Go and sin no more. I give you truth. And grace. I don't condemn you. I've paid the price for you. But stop living that way. There's a better life for you. Don't let culture dictate. Don't let culture tell you how to live. Don't let culture tell you how I love you. God says, I love you. I don't condemn you. Now go and sin no more. And this message is for me today. And this message is for you. Welcome home, but leave your life of sin. Let me just challenge our church today. Let me challenge those of you that call the movement church home. Look at me right in the eyes. We will hold tight to the truth of God. We will hold tight to the truth of God. We will not change God's word to our culture. But we will freely give the grace of God. Freely give the grace of God. We'll hold tight to the truth of God's word and freely give the grace of God. It's our prerogative in the culture that we live in. It's our prerogative. It's response time. What do you do with this? Pastor Kerry went way too long today. But the Holy Spirit's challenging each of us in this room. What do we do with it? Where do we go? What do we say? Some of us in this room may be like those that have this dogmatic approach to truth and that pendulum has swung too far and the Holy Spirit's saying, hey, come on back to the middle here. Some of us have this unrighteous opinion and ideal of what grace is and God's saying, no, 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 there's still got to be truth woven into the, the fullness of what grace is. All of us in this room have got some adjustments to make. Why? Because we're called 
to love well and stand firm in a culture of compromise. It's the role and the mandate that's on our life. Some of us in this room, the next step is simply to say yes to Jesus. There's a starting point for this. It's not church membership. It's not getting rid of your past, but it's simply saying, you know what? I've tried doing it on my own, and it's not working. So today, God, I'm making a decision to surrender my life or give you my life or invite you into the driver's seat and begin to follow you. Some of us in this room have not ever made that decision, and today's your day with no embarrassment and no one even knowing. Some of us in this room have been running from God, and today is the day to come running back. I want to pray for us, but before we do, would you do me a favor quietly and reverently? Would you stand to your feet? If you're here today and you've never prayed this prayer, you've never said, okay, I'm giving my life to Jesus and I want to challenge you. No one will know. Normally at the end, I would say, hey, if that was you, raise your hand. But today, no, this is just about you and God. If you're here and you've never crossed that line to begin a relationship with Jesus, today is your day. And if you're here today and you've been running from God, stop running and come back to him. I want to challenge you. Pray this prayer with me. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes? Nobody looking around. Nobody moving. Maybe you're here. You've never prayed this prayer. Today's the day to pray it again for the first time in a long time. I want all voices to pray this aloud with me today. Just say, dear God. Come on, aloud. Say, dear God. I know that you're real. I know that you love me. That you've given me purpose. I'm not perfect, God. Would you forgive me? Now make this statement your own. Say, Jesus, I give you my life. If you prayed that prayer with us today, we are so excited to be a part of this journey with you. Would you email us at info at theocmovement.com? And if you're not in the area, we would love to help you find another life-giving church near you. Send us an email at info at theocmovement.com and we'll get back to you shortly. Thank you again for listening to another inspiring message from The Movement Church.